morning, everyone. Uh, if you're here during our Advent Conspiracy Series, sorry, some of you can't see this, okay? Uh, it's only a triangle. Uh, if you're here during our Advent Conspiracy Series, you might remember this triangle, which uh, I introduced the week before Christmas as, as we thought about loving all up, in, out. And here, if you like, is a diagram of discipleship. This kind of illustrates and captures the three dimensions of our relational lives, the three kind of directions and ways that we should relate. And so to start with, you have up the vertical dimension, our relationship with God. God is to be number one. We are to have no other gods before him. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, with our entire beings. Or as the Westminster Catechism says, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The up aspect of our faith is critical and how we nurture that relationship is crucial. So the question is, how this morning is your relationship with God? How is it? And then there is our relationship with each other in dimension. How we relate as the family of God how we relate to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And according to Jesus, this in dimension is so critical because it's by our love for one another that people will know who we are and whose we are. It's by our love for one another that a watching world will know if we are his disciples. And so the way we do church, the way we are church, the way we relate within community speaks volumes. Question, how is your relationship with each other this morning? Is there any relationships that need to be addressed as you think of this aspect of your relational life as a Christian? And then the third feature out, this kind of second aspect of the, the horizontal dimension that takes us beyond these walls, that focuses on those who are not yet Christians. This is, if you like, the love your neighbor component of the great commandment. This is the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind component. This is the love your neighbor as yourself dimension. But as we thought about just before Christmas, it's more than just loving your neighbor. As Jesus so shockingly taught, we also have to love our enemies. We've got to bless those who persecute us. Question, how is your relationship with your work colleagues, with those who don't yet love Jesus and follow Jesus, who don't yet love God with their entire beings? How is your relationship 
with those people. Up, in, out. And I have become increasingly convinced that this is such a helpful, simple framework as we think about our life and witness. We are at an exciting juncture of of church life. There is lots happening, including this potential move to a larger space with the kind of greater visibility on the Lisburn Road. And as we journey together, these three dimensions are as important as they've ever been, maybe even more so. Our relationship with God is paramount. Our unity and expression of family life is pivotal, and our heart for this community, and our reaching out to those on our streets and in our city and in our workplaces, it's absolutely necessary. Up, in, out. It's a diagram of discipleship. And this morning, as we, as we begin a new series in the book of Acts, th- this is going to be our overall, as Stephen said, this is our overall title and theme for the next few months. Because as we read and, and kind of engage with Acts, we see these three dimensions played out. Up, how did the early church relate to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? In, how did the early church relate to one another as this new family, this new community of believers. Out, how did they relate to those around them as their message, or rather as the message of Jesus began to seep out and impact people's lives, including the Gentiles? Up, in, out. So here's our title slide. For the series, Mark has designed this graphic, as only Mark can, just before he went in the hospital. Uh, and Mark has also arranged to have these done out in little postcards that will be available for everybody later. And the idea is to just stick them in your Bible, stick them on a fridge, take a picture of it, use it as your screensaver on your phone. Just use it as a, a reminder. Here is a diagram of discipleship. How is my relationship with God? How is my relationship with my family? Brothers and sisters in Christ, how is my relationship with those who are not yet Christians. And okay, so with that as a a kind of introduction and having established a bit of a framework for this series, let's start reading Acts. Uh, it's It's a book full of energy and excitement as the early Christians found God doing all kinds of new things all over the place. There isn't a dull page in Acts. Now, I'm not suggesting there are dull pages in the rest of Scripture, okay? Well, well, actually, maybe there are, but anyway, let's not go there. This is, this is a book that is packed with incidents and accidents, and we're going to read our way through the majority of this book. We're not going to read the entire book, but we're certainly going to read our way through the majority of this book between now and the end of May, okay? So, so that's where we're going. And so if you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn to chapter one? It's page 1092 in the Pew Bibles, and in a moment, not just yet, we're going to stand for the public reading of God's dynamic word. Uh, You'll see the way this starts, if you just look at it, in my former book, Theophilus. So who was Theophilus? Luke, who wrote Acts, Dr. Luke, also wrote his gospel. He also addressed his gospel to Theophilus, but there's lots of conjecture regarding his identity. 
Who, who was Theophilus? Some think he was a Roman official. Some think he was a Jewish priest. Some even think he was Paul's lawyer. Or maybe he wasn't a person at all. It's just an honorary title. Apparently, in Greek, the name means friend of God. And therefore, Luke and Acts are just addressed to anyone who fits that description. At the end of the day, it's not a big deal, okay? But let's stand as we read God's Word. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about what Jesus began to do and teach until the day Jesus was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then, he gathered round, then they gathered round him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Please take a seat. It's all about Jesus. In verse 1, if you look, if you look, Luke makes it really clear that his former book was all about Jesus. He says, In my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. But there's a real danger as you begin reading this sequel, as you begin reading Acts. Or certainly as you get past verse 9, whenever Jesus disappears as a character, the danger is to assume, well, the focus has now shifted. It's no longer about Jesus. It's now about the early church. Or it's about key characters in the early church. So, for example, it's about Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Or it's about Paul the most high-profile, larger-than-life convert to Christianity who becomes a bit of an A-lister. That's what Acts is really all about. But it's so important to remember and never forget, it's still all about Jesus. The whole way through. And if we don't get that, if we miss this, then we will miss so much as we set out over these next three months. 
Jesus may be absent as a character from the story after verse 9 of the very first chapter, although he does appear to reappear in Acts 7 and Acts 9, but that's for another week. But his influence, even though Jesus has gone after verse 9, his influence throughout the rest of the narrative is profound. His name occurs no less than 69 times throughout the whole book of Acts. It's all about Jesus. And we're going to see this time and time again as we track developments. This story, our story, goes nowhere without Jesus. And I know this is something we've said a number of times here at Windsor, but you know, in all we do, and in whatever we do, it's all about Jesus. I kind of can't say that strongly enough. Jesus at the center, Jesus at the hub, Jesus at the core of everything. We've got to keep coming back to the heart of worship because it's all about Jesus. It's why, for example, we started a course on Thursday night, Discovering Jesus Through Asian Eyes. And we know from elsewhere in the New Testament that, you know, see if we're going to last this course, if we're going to run this race, if we're going to finish well, then we have got to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Here's the up dimension. And as we stress this focus this morning, and that's really all I want to do, but as we stress this focus this morning on Jesus and stress the focus that there is on Jesus in the rest of the book of Acts, don't think Jesus goes after verse nine and then becomes about something else. It's not about something else. It's still all about Jesus. And as I kind of try to stress that, I want to highlight four things that Luke says about Jesus and refers to and draws attention to in these introductory verses to his sequel. Here are the four things, because it's okay to say, stay focused on Jesus. Well, what exactly does that mean? What what am I to stay focused on? Can't see him. So how do I fix my eyes on Jesus? Here's four things to to keep in sharp, sharp focus. His resurrection, his teaching, his promise, his return. So the first is his resurrection. Jesus, and and Stephen drew this out as, as we gathered around the table, Jesus is alive. Luke clarifies right up front that for 40 days, 40 days is a significant period in biblical terms. It's one of the reasons why we had 40 days of prayer, not 39, okay? But according to Luke, Jesus appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days, presented himself to them and gave them, and here's the bit, he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. The the evidence was irrefutable and they were convinced he was alive. But that was not always the case. And it's, it's important to know this. At the end of the gospels and particularly at the end of Mark, we find that the disciples weren't 100% sure Jesus was alive. And so we read in Mark 16 how Jesus rebuked the disciples for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had said they had seen him risen from the dead. So the disciples weren't always 100% convinced that Jesus was back again. 
But six weeks later or thereabouts, 40 days later, they're fully on board. And in fact, from this point on in the story, the disciples are described, or rather, the disciples describe themselves as witnesses to his resurrection. Acts 2, 32, Acts 3, 15, et cetera, et cetera. Every time they refer to the resurrection, every time they refer to themselves, they could say, we were witnesses to the resurrection. The doubt has gone, the questioning is over. Jesus is alive, fact, end off. And we, as the church, need to affirm that. We need to stay focused on that. This is what it means to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to stay focused on his resurrection because without it, we might as well pack up and go home now. If there's no resurrection, then there's no gospel. And all we're left with is the sad and and okay, quite impressive memory of a great but failed teacher and would-be Messiah. Jesus is alive. The second thing to stay focused on as we look to Jesus is his teaching and specifically the content of his teaching during those 40 days. According to the end of verse 3, Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, his favorite topic of conversation, his favorite topic of teaching, which is all about, and I know we could spend ages exploring this in far greater detail, but the kingdom of God is all about God's rule and reign coming on earth as it is in heaven. And the fact that Jesus is alive, having been brutally murdered and buried for three days, that is compelling proof that the kingdom, this new world order, is becoming a greater and greater reality. Jesus has conquered death. This new world order that he came to bring, it's mind-blowing. As N.T. Wright says, the resurrection of Jesus who died under the weight of the world's evil is the foundation of the new world, God's new world whose opening scenes is described, he is describing, I should say, in Acts. Jesus is alive. We need to stay focused on that. Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. We need to stay focused on the teaching of Jesus. We spent the whole series looking at a key part of that teaching about the kingdom of God and the Sermon on the Mount. We need to stay focused. That's what it means to fix your eyes on Jesus. Walk as Christ walked. Love your enemy. Don't judge Speak truth. Go the extra mile. That's what it means to fix our eyes on Jesus and on his teaching and on the kingdom of God. To bring heaven on earth. The third thing we need to stay focused on is his promise. As Luke tells us here at the start about these events, he refers to one occasion during the 40 days whenever Jesus reveals this stunning prospect. Verse four, do not leave Jerusalem, says Jesus, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about for John the Baptist, or for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. After a period of waiting, and I'll come back to that idea in a moment, but after a period of waiting at some point in the future, and who knows for how long, they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
And as a result of being baptized with the Holy Spirit, they will discover a new and powerful reality in their lives. And when they receive this power, they will become his witnesses, Christ's witnesses, because, forgive me for being repetitive, it's all about Jesus. What a prospect. Wait. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You'll be empowered to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. What a prospect. What a privilege. What a responsibility. But it seems that just as they hear this, as they attempt to process this, as they try to get their heads around it, just imagine hearing all this for the very first time. Just as they try to get it into their heads, Jesus disappears. He's taken up before their eyes, and he's gone. He's not gone forever. Because according to two men in white who suddenly appear from somewhere or from nowhere, they were probably angels. But according to these two men who just suddenly appear, Jesus will be back again. It's all about Jesus. Jesus will return. And if we do not bear this in mind, we will miss a defining reality of life. Because you see, when Jesus comes back, everything changes for all eternity. God's rule and reign finally and fully arrives, and a whole new world order is forever established. Take our eyes off Jesus, and we are in danger of missing that. And so, church, as we think about this up dimension this morning, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us stay focused on his resurrection, his teaching about the kingdom of God, his promise, and his return. Some ways that would be a good place to stop, but it's still only 22, so I'm going to keep going. So back to Acts 1, because for now, for now the disciples are to wait. Wait to be empowered and then to witness. And so it says they return to Jerusalem and they do part A. They they wait. Now, presumably, I've often thought this, presumably the Holy Spirit could have come immediately after Jesus' ascension. Kind of, you wonder why he didn't. Surely it would have made more sense. Jesus goes, Spirit comes. No hanging about, let's get on with it. But instead, they're told to wait. And they have to wait, and they do wait, and so they embrace obedience. They do what Jesus has told them to do, which is another important feature of discipleship. But waiting is difficult can be agonizing. And yet waiting time in God's economy is never wasted time. And waiting on God, rather than rushing ahead and doing our own thing or doing another thing or worse still, doing the wrong thing, waiting on God is so important because it encourages us to stay focused, 
to be responsive, to learn patience, to remain expectant. Waiting time is preparation time, and therefore how we wait and the way we wait becomes so important. As one person has written, how we wait determines how we grow and who we become. That, that is brilliant. How we wait determines how we grow and who we become. The disciples wait, unaware of how long they're going to have to wait. Jesus didn't tell them. Just go to Jerusalem and wait. There's no time scale put in this. Just wait. And so the disciples do. But how they wait, the way they wait is fascinating. They don't just sit around and do nothing. There is an active dimension to their waiting. According to verse 14, the apostles, plus a number of others, join together constantly in prayer. During this time, they look to God, they talk to God, they stay focused on God, they remain attentive, they are expectant, they're in a good place, they're in the right place, they're not gonna miss what God has for them, they're not gonna miss what has been promised to them, irrespective of how long it takes, they are on their knees. And I don't wanna make too big a deal about this, or, or maybe I do, but I don't think it is a coincidence that the recent developments in church life here at Windsor came out of a period of waiting on God in prayer. And maybe more significantly, a period of waiting on God in united prayer. And so I honestly believe there is a really important underlying principle and value at stake here that reminds us that as we wait on God for whatever it is you're waiting for, including the return of Jesus, by the way, but as we wait on God, there is nothing more vital and more active that we can do than pray. Nothing. We need to be a praying people, a praying church. Otherwise, we may miss what God is doing in us and what God might be doing through us. And I suppose another key question then is, how is your prayer life? How is your prayer life? The priority of prayer in Christian discipleship cannot be overstated. And incidentally, this evening, we are starting this new series called Rhythm and Rules. And what we're going to be doing for the next number of weeks on a Sunday evening is creating a rule of life. A rhythm of ancient practices that, that is very personal to you so that we can experience the transforming presence of God in everything. And so as we write a rule of life for us, one of the first things that we're going to be looking at is prayer. How does that feature in our rhythm of daily life? Back to this as we nearly finished. You see, if we're going to nurture this upward, vertical dimension, this relationship with God, then we have got to be a praying people. We've got to be a praying church, people who are constantly in dialogue with our Father. 
And I've no doubt that as the disciples prayed in that room, that one of the main things they were praying for, I've often wondered, what, what, what exactly were they praying for? <laughs> what did they pray about during all that time? Well, I, well, I'm convinced that one of the things they were praying for was the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's what Jesus had promised them to wait for. And so it's, it seems obvious to me that that's what they were asking for. And in some ways, and we've thought about this recently, that, that kind of remains one of the priorities of prayer for us. As Luke tells us in his gospel, one of the best gifts that the Father wants to give us is the Holy Spirit. And so whenever Jesus was teaching on prayer about the reluctant neighbor, he said, listen, your Father in heaven is nothing like a reluctant neighbor who you kind of have to badger into getting up in the middle of the night to, to hear what you want to say. Our God, your Father, is constantly attentive and he wants to give good gifts. And the key good gift that your Father wants to give you is the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus said, so if you sinful people, if, you, if we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And as Christians, and I know we looked at this recently during our Conversation and Encounter series, but as Christians, we have received, we have been given the Holy Spirit from day one of new birth. From the moment we start following Jesus, God by his Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. I know that. That's explicit biblical teaching. But there's also no doubt that we absolutely need to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, explicit biblical teaching. We need to continue to give ourselves over to his occupancy in our lives. We need to keep submitting to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, surrendering to his work, allowing him to form us and conform us and transform us into the likeness of Christ, allowing him to produce his fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. I don't know about you, but I need more and more of God's Holy Spirit in my life if I am going to walk the way Christ walked. If I'm going to live this life, if I am going to guard my relationship with God, guard my relationship with you, guard my relationship with people outside and beyond these walls, then I need more and more of the Holy Spirit. And so we need to pray for and never stop praying for that. Jesus has gone, Acts 1, 9. But it's still all about him. He's alive, and he promises the disciples he's gonna send their Holy, the Holy Spirit to empower them and to enable them, but for now, they've gotta wait. They've gotta actively wait, and next week, we'll discover exactly what happened as they waited and as they prayed. For us, it's still all about Jesus. He is alive. His teaching, his kingdom teaching shapes our lives. He is coming back. But for now, we wait and we pray or we should. Yes, as post-Pentecost people, we have the Holy Spirit living within us. But let's pray for more, more of his presence, more of his power, more of his fruit to enable us to be witnesses wherever we find ourselves this week, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our colleges, our universities, in our communities, in our neighborhood. Father, I need more of that gift of the Holy Spirit in my life. If I'm gonna live this.